Let's take our Bibles. We're going to continue in a series that we're titling Confidence. And before we get into 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, I just want to tell you a quick story. I was at the Farabees last night uh, having dinner. They are a wonderful, wonderful family. If you have not gotten to know them, then get to know them. And so we were there last night having some dinner together, and their oldest, Cora, said, there's a Bible study. I'm leading a Bible study tonight. And she wrote out a little invitation for my wife and I to attend her Bible study. And so how old is Cora? Joe, where are you, Joe? Leah? Six. And so uh, she had a little table and a little chair set up. She had her Bible out that she had just gotten, a brand-new Bible. And she had some notes, and she had some, uh, some, a song that we were going to sing together. So she goes to Judges. I'm thinking, Judges, wow. I mean, that's like Old Testament hardcore, man. And so she's reading some verses out of Judges about Gideon. And so I'm listening. This, this was not like um, kind of just like this is cute. The Holy Spirit <laughs> was moving through her, through the text of Scripture, speaking to me. And I'm listening to that. I'm like, that's, that's a word for me. You know, and then she mo- goes over to Psalm 3, which is one of my favorite passages. I never asked her to do this. This was the Holy Spirit moving through a child. Do you believe that can happen? Can I get something in the house here? Can you, do you believe that can happen? That little kids, six years old, can be empowered by the Spirit of the Lord and used of God? And so we sang a song and we read Psalm 3, and, and I'm about ready to tear up. I was like, God, you sent Korah to me because I needed to hear the word the way that it was presented, and it was awesome. It was awesome. And so I am ready today. I am ready to preach today. Is anybody ready to listen today? Well, you should have been at the Bible study if you're not ready to listen. Come on. And so I'm ready because all of that was preparation for me. I needed to get kind of just my perspective again and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and God used Korah. So if you see Korah, uh, ask her, can I come to your Bible study sometime? And sure, she'll give you an invitation. So we're talking about confidence. Is everybody okay with the sound here? I feel like I'm cutting in and out a little bit. Batteries are good? Is it just uh, my allergies? Let me tell you a quick story here. A priest and a pastor from two local churches are standing by the side of the road, pounding a sign into the ground that reads, the end is near, turn yourself around now before it's too late. A car was speeding by and a driver yelled out, leave us alone, you religious nuts. And from the curve, they heard screeching tires and a big splash. And the pastor turned to the priest and asked, do you think the sign should have just said bridge out? (laughs) Confidence, conveying confidence, being confident, understanding what confidence is, being overconfident. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to confidence. Go to 1st. John chapter 2, we're going to continue in this series by that same name. And we know that John is the writer of the letter. We know that he wrote the Gospel of John, 2 John, 3 John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. And so he is the writer. He's the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He had been relocated to the city of Ephesus. This is where it's written from. And so he was relocating because of the diaspora. He's relocated out of James 1. You'll see that there was a dispersion. Persecution had erupted in A.D. 70. Jewish people, Christians started to move out into the known world at that time. And so John ends up in Ephesus. And he's writing this letter from this city. It's a great city. It's a very strategic city. And this is where really the the gospel would go to the rest of the world. 
Ephesus and Philippi and through Macedonia. And so God was moving his gospel from Jerusalem, which was centered there. And that's where Christianity started. And then it moves out and it's going to the rest of the world. And certainly it came to you and I eventually many centuries later. But Ephesus is a strategic city. And this is where John is writing to. The relocation distance is probably compared to Reading. If you were to relocate and go down to Key West, Florida, it's about that far for the Apostle John and his family to be able to go and then live his life and plant a church and be uh, used of the Lord to write the scriptures. And so here's the Apostle John, and the readers that he's writing to are struggling with confidence and assurance. False teachers and assorted nut jobs were in the area, and they're giving out their doctrines of demons. And don't you know that there's doctrines of demons in the world? Don't you know that behind every ideology, every false religion is a demon? And so it's, it's out there, it's in Reading, and so it's pervasive around the world, and in Ephesus, it's a big deal. And so now John is writing this letter to these readers because some of them are running away. Some of them are, are really struggling with the whole confidence of their assurance of salvation, and so John wants them to be sure that they're born again. But he also wants his readers to understand what true Christianity looks like because there's, a, there's just a hodgepodge of all kinds of beliefs going on in the city of Ephesus and surrounding towns. So words like no, gnosko is the word for no in the New Testament, and it's used 40 times here in 1 John. It means this. It means taking in knowledge and coming to know something, coming to understand something completely. We would call that experiential Christianity. Oh, are we in need of experiential Christianity? We're in need of Christianity that goes far beyond your brain, and it's something happens inside of your heart. Are you with me on that? Something needs to happen to the church of God where the truth of God goes into somebody and starts to completely and radically change their life. So the gospel's going, and John is preaching it, and he's planting a church, and he's raising up disciples, and then you have these people that are going sideways spiritually. What's happening there? Well, they're losing some kind of an assurance. They're not sure of something. And so he has to write this letter to be able to answer some of those questions. You could call it like this, a definiteness, a definiteness. If you were to ask me something and if I were to respond to you with confidence, I would say definitely. Have you ever used that word before? You would go definitely. That means you're, you're conveying confidence. You believe something. You're sure. You're not not sure. You're not doubting. And so you would maybe use that word, definitely. This is where John's going with this. Let me just ask you some questions here, and I want you to think with me for a moment. Suppose I was going to go on a road trip with you, and so uh, we're going to go from the East Coast to the West Coast. Anybody want to go to California with me? Come on, let's go. Ever been to Cali? It's awesome out there. And so I went to your house with my vehicle, and I pulled up to your house, and you were all packed, and you came out the front door, and my car was there, and my car was held together with duct tape and bondo. And so you came out of the house and you're looking at my vehicle and you look down at the duct tape and the bondo. How many people would be confident that we're going to make it from the East Coast all the way to California, right? It just doesn't happen. You see? Amen. Hallelujah. Here's another one. Suppose that you needed surgery. You know, you had a serious operation. You went to the doctor. You got the consultation. You got the doctor to look at you and diagnose you. And so he's a, he's a surgeon. You know, that's what he calls himself. And so you need a surgery. And you go to him and you say, well, how much experience do you have as a surgeon? He said, you know what? I was really good at the game operation. You should have seen me. I was awesome. And that's about all I have as far as experience. What would you do? You'd be like, yeah, I'm looking somewhere else. I'll see you later. Thanks for the lollipop. You know, I'm leaving. And so you just don't have any confidence in that. 
How about this? You get on an airplane, you're traveling somewhere, and you get on. Usually when you go on the airplane now, the pilot is right there on the left. The door's open typically, at least the airlines I travel. And so I walk on, and and there's a 14-year-old junior high as my captain. How many people are going to be confident? You need confidence. We all need confidence. Let me show you a a picture here if you could bring that up. This is going to be rather intimidating. Are we we there? Hit Hit the picture there. How about the one before that? There it is. Think about yourself. Okay, we're used to tornadoes in the area lately, right? We're used to them. And so you're in this building here. How many people would be confident inside of that building right there with that thing coming at you, right? You wouldn't be. How about a next one? We'll see that next one. All right, here we go. You're crossing over a 1,000-foot gorge, and that's all you have. How many people are going to have confidence? I'm trying to think of something real funny about Don, but I'm not going to say it because it it won't come out right. We need confidence. So we looked at last Lord's Day, last Sunday, we looked at confident in relationship. You got to be confident when God manifests himself, and he is. Did anybody sense the manifest presence of the Lord during worship? Right? Tears will flow. Revelation will hit your mind. Your heart will start to race a little bit because you're thinking, wow, God is showing up. Manifest presence. What was the, the second principle we looked at? When we look at confident in relationship, it's the maintaining of the practice of the Christian life maintaining practice. Manifest presence, maintaining practice. That's what John's given us in chapter 1. The title of the message today as we look at chapter 2 is Confident in Resisting. Confident in Resisting. There are four, four ways. These are wonderful. I want you to, I'm going to fly through these as best that I can so that we're not here till 3 or 4 in the afternoon. But I think it's important for you to to see the truths. And so let me give you the four that are in the text. We're going to go through the whole chapter together. I want you to write these in the handout if you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person. Here's number one. We need to be confident in resisting sinful detours. Sinful detours. This is verse one to six. Have you ever taken a detour? How many people do you see a detour and you're like immediately in the flesh, right? You're swearing in your mind. You've got an attitude problem. Anybody like that? Do you just love detours in Berks County? No, up in New England, man, you just got really fleshly. And so nobody likes detours where I'm from up there. And so detours are common. Uh, there's detours on the 422 here in Mount Penn. Anybody familiar with those if you live out in this area? And so detours. You go around, you're, you're, you're in this lane, and you're traveling, and you're going to end up at the original destination, but it's an inconvenience, inconvenience. Listen, sin detours are not inconvenient. They're dangerous. Let me show this picture here, Zach, if you could bring that up. Here's a, here's a detour. How many people like to go on that detour, huh? Look at that. Well, wh- what's happening in this picture here is that uh, people are tra- obviously traveling somewhere. And so, uh, but this is what happens to Christians when, when sin is before you and you're making a choice to sin. Uh, you're going to be put in a situation very similar to this. It's very dangerous what you're doing. And what I'm doing is when we go down that road. You don't want to go down the sin detour road. Where's it ultimately going to lead you? Ultimately, certainly death. And if you don't know Jesus, hell. And so you don't want to do that. And so John opens up the text. If you'll take your eyes there, he'll say, my little children. Notice it in 1 John chapter 2. He calls them little children. Now, if I called adults children, uh, there might be a little bit of a pushback, and I might get an email for that, right? But John is able to say, my little children, and he says that because... He has affections for them. And in that culture, you could say something like that to an adult. 
today it would, it would be a little bit offensive to treat an adult like that. But John opens up his letter by saying, my little children. He uses the same phrase in verse 12, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, and 5, 21. So John is using my little children. He loves his people. Any pastor loves his people. And a pastor that loves his people is going to speak truth to his people, even if there's pushback. So the last thing you need as a person that goes to Harvest Reading is for me to, to dance with you. Do you know how much I like dancing? Do we need to bring Eric Warner back up today? You don't dance. We don't dance. Christians shouldn't dance together. And there, sh- and there should be this honesty and vulnerability and communication. And I love you. I'm going to tell you something that's hard. John is like that. He loves his children. You'll notice the personal pronoun, my. This is very personal to him. And any pastor that loves his people takes things very, very personal. Not an insecure way, but a protective way, a loving way. You'll see that he goes on to say that you may not sin. This is the, the Greek tense of all of this, is that we, you and I, the readers that John is writing to, is not in a repetitive lifestyle of sinning. This isn't saying that you may not sin once. It's not talking. Anybody ever sin once here? Just you and me, Don, Right? I mean, it's just like you, you'll sin once, at least once a day, probably, maybe once a week, maybe once a month. And so he's not talking about that. He's talking about a repetitive, that you may not continuously sin, that you may not be in a habitual lifestyle of sinning. Now, that's a real big problem, and we're going to see as we go through First John that there were some that were calling themselves Christians but were in this lifestyle of sinning without remorse, without repentance. They were saying they were Christians, but really John's going to say to us, they weren't true believers. This is an important little letter for Harvest Reading and for the church in general. So he's talking about that, and that's what that means, that little phrase there. He goes on to say, we have an advocate. Are you with me in the text? Do you see that? We have an advocate. This is someone that takes up your cause. Verse 2, he goes on, he, say, he says about Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. Spell that, huh? That's a big theological word. It means this, a sacrifice to turn wrath into blessing. The wrath of God was going towards you. And it was going towards you. And it was going towards me. The wrath of Almighty God. And then Jesus was the propitiation. So the wrath that was coming towards me and towards you then was turned and it hit who? Christ. It hit Jesus instead of me. How many people? Is that not humbling to think that? That's the propitiation, so John is wanting his readers to go, he is the propitiation for our sins. It's a legal picture here in these verses that he opens up chapter 2 with. It's a legal picture. Did you know that there's lawyers in heaven? Believe it or not, lawyers make it to heaven? Really? And so there's lawyers there, but there's only one practicing lawyer, and that's who? It's Jesus. He's the advocate. This is a defense uh, posture that we're, we're looking at the Apostle John communicating the word of God here. And so Jesus is an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. Verse 3. Can you look at verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3? Notice it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you see that that section there, verse 3? We come to know him. My profession is real. Now watch this, because I've been around Christianity a long time, and I've seen a lot of Christians in churches, and their lifestyle isn't lining up to the life of the Lord Jesus and so, but they're, they're in church, and they, they're kind of going through the motions, we would call that. And so John is saying there's a profession that's going out, but the end of that verse, if we are 
keeping his commandments. That's the Greek. If we have this lifestyle, this habitual lifestyle in the direction of the Lord Jesus and wanting to follow him and repenting regularly and having a heart for God where the tears flow because I want to worship him, if that is the life that we're living, then it's a good chance that the profession is real. But if the profession is going out, John says, and we're not continuously keeping his commandments, then there's a major problem. And you'll see more of this as we go through the whole letter in the next three weeks or so. So I want you to write this in the, you're not going to see a blank, but I want you to write this. We'll call it ongoing obedience. Ongoing obedience. Put that there somewhere next to point number one. Ongoing obedience. This is how you get confident in resisting when you are obedient on an ongoing basis. Look at verse four and five. Notice it with me. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a what? The truth isn't in him. That's what it says there. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in other words, keeps on keeping his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him, and whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And who is the he? Jesus. So I I would imagine that if you were to come to me and say, and you were to look at my life, who should you see in my life? Jesus. That's for any Christian. That's just not for a pastor, but you're a pastor, and pastors are holy. And uh, that's what I get through the years. And so if they see me outside of the church context in regular clothes, they're like, you look kind of weird. And I don't even dress up on Sundays. But the perspective on pastors is that they're holy, and we should be. But not just pastors, right? There's no distinction here. So the leader, holy, humble, trying his best. The congregation, what? Holy, humble, trying their best. It's the same thing. So don't put the guy up too high on that pedestal and then think that you can live like the devil and it's okay for you, but it's not okay for the leadership. It's for everyone. And so John is a leader. He's got that apostolic gifting and that pastoral call. I love the verse six. It says, we ought to walk. We ought to keep walking. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. What is the pattern of your life? Are you confident in relationship with God? Are you confident in resisting sinful detours? Number one. Number two, resisting spiritual darkness. This is in verse 7 to now verse 14. uh, John goes on. He says, beloved, this is a term of affection again. He says, I am writing. And why does he repeat this again? Because he had said it previously. Well, he's saying it for emphasis. And he wants them to know that the things that I have said, John's saying, the things that I have said are in the Old Testament and they're being revealed in the New Testament. He's making a comparison here. He's comparing the old and the new, but that's not the primary comparison. The the primary comparison is darkness and light. Notice verse eight. He He says this, the darkness is passing away. The darkness is passing away. And for the true believer, the darkness is passing away. It's not like we're heading into darkness. The darkness is behind us, and the light is ahead of us, and we're abiding in the light. The darkness is passing away. This is a very important phrase. Darkness is describing blindness. It's describing, ultimately, lostness. So he's talking about lostness. And so this this verse that he says here in verse 9, the statement, uh, still there's this people, the people of God in darkness, Ephesus are battling with living a lifestyle, not in the light, but in the dark. They're still in darkness. They're, they're lost. 
Think about the time when you were un- a non-Christian. I've been a Christian probably, I don't know, 30, maybe 32 years. Is anybody under 10 years as a Christian? You're under the 10-year mark. You're a newer Christian. Phenomenal. Under 10 years. Don't ever forget what it was like to walk in darkness. Don't ever forget that you were blind. So I wanted to illustrate this, and so I have a mask here. Anybody use a mask when they sleep at night to try to, oh, cool. And so this is my mask. I don't have a sleeping mask, but this gets the wrinkles away. So, but it's still going to prove the point here. Ready? And so if I put this on, and so it has the, like, the little balls in there that helps my wrinkles. And so, but I still can't see. I'm completely, completely blind. Trust me. And so I hear your voice, Adam, so I'll try to make my way over here. But this is how we've lived. This is spirit. John is saying, you're still in darkness. You can't see. And so I might be, I might even be a pastor, and I might be a Christian, and I'm still in darkness. I can't see. I can't perceive things spiritual. I'm not even wanting anything of the light. And so this is the way that we used to live before we were Christians. And then course, Christ comes and he opens our eyes. Do you remember the story where Jesus heals the blind, was it the blind man, and he takes dirt, he spits in it, right, he makes mud, and then he puts it where? Okay, he puts it on the eyes, and so this is a great, great picture of how Jesus will take the things of the world, the earth, he'll take something, he'll totally twist that around and use it for supernatural purposes. And so that's a word just I was getting, it wasn't even on my notes, it was during worship. And I said, God, that's an illustration I need to share because there are some people in the house here that you need the, the, the Lord Jesus to take some dirt. He's going to take what is fallen. He's going to take the earth and he's going to do something supernatural with it to open your eyes to something that you might need to see. John is very concerned about his readers here that they're walking in darkness. They're still in darkness I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark. Anybody afraid of the dark growing up? You're saying afraid of the dark when I was young. I'm still afraid of the dark. It's called nyctophobia. You're afraid of the dark. Dark place. Can we throw up this image here? I want you to see something. I want you to think about this. Think about entering into a dark room. What is the first thing that you're going to do when you go into a dark room? Yeah, I don't know too many people who just kind of walk into a dark room. It's just really cool with them. You know, usually we, we look for the light switch. We, we want to be in the light. We don't want to be in the dark unless you're a burglar or a thief. But all, others, like all, all of us, we want to be in the light. Now notice verse 10. Verse 10, John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Are you there with me? Isn't it interesting? He's talking about relationships with other Christians. Other Christians who, who say that they love you, but they really don't. You're going to find that to be more and more true as you grow older in the Lord, especially those who lift up their hands under 10 years. You're going to find those who hurt you the most will be those who are closest to you and call themselves a brother. Isn't that what Scripture says? John is saying something here very important for some of us to hear. Whoever, whoever loves his brother, truly Christian love, this is the person that is habitually showing the love of Jesus. They're not stumbling around in the dark. They're not in the dark. They're resisting it. They're remaining in the light. And whatever happens in relationship, you want to be Jesus to the other person. Let's take that to an extreme, your enemy. That would be the extreme. Who is your enemy? Do you have an enemy? 
Everybody's going to have at least one enemy in their, their lifetime. Can you love them? Well, you can if you're abiding in the light. If Jesus Christ is truly in you and the power of God is on you, then you'll be able to love even your enemy. But if you hate him, if you hate him, are you a Christian? John would say no. That's hard truth. That's not my truth. That's what John the Apostle is saying. He wants to lay this thing out here. He's talking about spiritual darkness. Let me write, write this in. I gave you one that wasn't in the notes, but here's another one. Intentional illumination. This is how you build confidence by resisting spiritual darkness. It's called intentional illumination. You go into a room and you're looking for the light switch. This is what I do. I go into the room. It's probably in the off position. And so you're kind of feeling around. And you hit the light. It's intentional. You're making a choice because you don't want to go into a dark room. So you're making a choice to illuminate. You want to be illuminated. It's the same thing in the Christian life. And so what you're doing is you're turning on. Turning on. Go to church. Turn it on. Intentional illumination. Stay out of church. You're keeping that off. You're not going to get the illumination that you need. And you're not going to be able to resist spiritual darkness when it hits you. Turn it on. Church. What else can we turn it on? Illumination, intentional. What would we do? Anybody got a Bible? Bible. Get into the Bible. Intentional illumination. Somebody said group, harvest group, or, or summer study. Turn it on. Inten you see what I'm saying here? Keep turning on the light is John's his point. And this is how you get to the place where you can resist spiritual darkness. It's so important. Ongoing obedience. Number two, intentional illumination. Let's go to the third. Third one, we'll call it secular distractions. Secular distractions. Here's how you're going to be confident. It's in verses 15 down to verse 17. Here's some trivia for all you trivia buffs. Everybody have a, a, a smartphone? Who has a smartphone? Not in, maybe not here with you, but you have a smartphone. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Nice and high, nice and high, nice and high. Okay, you're going to, you're going to use that cell phone about 82,000 times a year. That, that breaks down to about every four minutes of your life, you're going to touch your phone. Every four minutes. John's going to say something very important. If you look at verse 15, notice 2.15, he says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's talk a little bit about secular distractions secular distractions. He says, don't love the world. Don't love the world. Can we show that image, Zach? This is not what he's talking about. Isn't that beautiful? Well, I think the hobbits live there. I think this is the Shire. So this is not what he's saying. If, you, if there's beauty, mountains, scenery, uh, that is not what he's talking about. Do not love the world. He's not talking about, you know, geography, and he's not talking about the topography. He's not talking about anything like this. I know that the cuttings were out in, in California. Are they still out in California? Is that where they are? They went to Yosemite National Park. If you've never been to the Yosemite National Park, it's like heaven on earth. Lisa and I got to go there about 20 years ago. And so it's phenomenal. So I don't see Andy Cutting, you know, walking down the trails. You should see some of his Facebook posts. They're incredible. And so I don't think he's going down those trails going, I just hate this, and I hate that, and I hate that. He's not doing that. He's probably saying, wow, I love this. 
If you've ever been there, you'll love it. El Capitan is phenomenal just to look up at that thing. That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about the systems of the world. He's talking about the values of the world. He's talking about that fallenness, the way that non-Christians live, we shouldn't be living. This is what he's talking about. Do not love that world. I was reading a book recently. It's by Tony Ranke, and his book is titled 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And there's chapter one, and it's titled, We Are Addicted to Distraction. Donald Gruthius, I think I have that quote here, if you could pull that up. Here's what he said in his book, The Soul in Cyberspace. This is written in 1997. Some of you weren't even born in 1997. It's difficult to serve God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind when we are diverted and distracted and multitasking everything. If you want a good read, it's going to freak you out uh, because you're going to look at your phone going like, wow, this is really changing me. It's a good read. Very solid. Disciplined desires. Write that down. Here's the third one. Here's what we do. We discipline our desires. Three times in three verses, desires are used in the text. Desires. He says that your desires need to be disciplined away from the world's values and systems and thinking and perspective and centered right back to the will of God, whoever does the will of God. Now, I said this probably three or four months ago. I'm going to say it again. Some of you had uh, some conversation around this statement in your harvest group, but I want to say it one more time. Remember, we do what we desire. You will always do what you desire. You're saying, no, that's not true. Follow it through. Follow it logically. Take some time. Pray that through. You're going to find out that anything that you do, if you sin, do you desire to sin? Yeah. But there's a part of you that goes, I don't want to do it. But why did we do it? Because desire entered in somewhere. Everything. All of our actions are preceded by desire. If you want a good read, Jonathan Edwards handled this phenomenally back in the 18th century. And he's the one that really opened my eyes to that. So he's talking about the flesh. Look at it. There are three areas of the world. It's the flesh that would be the appetites of the flesh, the physical appetites. Of course, that would be sexual sins. That would be anything relating to the physical appetites of our life. He calls it the pride of life, and he calls it the, the eyes. He, the eyes, things go into our eyes, material things, idols, the camper you can't afford, the boat, the car, whatever it may be. Uh, those are things that the, the world esteems highly. They don't care much for all the things that would cause you to have some serious debt issues. Uh, that's some of the things of the world. We would call it two things. You don't have to write these down, but narcissism, which is it's all about yourself, you're narcissistic, or hedonism, and hedonism is it's all about pleasure. This is our world. This is what our world lives. This is what our world believes. This is what he's talking about. So we have sinful detours, spiritual darkness, secular distractions, and how do you gain the confidence by resisting ongoing obedience, intentional illumination, and disciplined desires. Number four, and finally, satanic deceptions. Verses 18 down to verse 29, satanic deceptions. And there's a lot of them. Verse 18, John talks about an antichrist. Look at it. This is the end time ruler that's going to rise up, probably is in the world right now. We don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. Some people thought years ago it was Hitler. Some people thought it was the Pope. You know, some people might think it's Donald Trump. I don't know. I don't think any of those people were the antichrist. But he is out there, and he will rise. John's saying that. This is written two centuries or 2,000 years ago. And so 
he's talking about an antichrist, but continue through the text because he's talking about many antichrists. That's different. That's not the antichrist. That is a spirit of antichrist. Anything that's against Jesus, against his person, against his work, that is an antichrist belief. That's deception. And anything or anyone that propagate, prob, what's the word? Propagates, thank you, help, thank you for helping me, gets that out there and they're saying Jesus wasn't the son of God. Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. You know, God is, is many gods. You just choose your path. That is satanic deception. And it was happening here in the city of Ephesus and John is dealing with that. You'll notice in verse 19, notice, take your eyes to verse 19. He says, they went out from us. Notice, they, who's the they? These are professors. These are people that say they possess the, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. Perseverance of the saints. Preservation of the saints. Any true Christian makes it to heaven. Nothing can stop that. This is what he's talking about. These people had come. They made professions of Jesus Christ as Savior, but they never lasted. They went apostate. They, they hooked themselves up with an ism or some kind of false religion. And John is saying, but if they were really of us, they would have continued with us. It's called perseverance of the saints, theologically, or the preservation of the saints. God always pre preserves those who are true, those who are real believers. Some would call that Eternal security, is that what some of them is called? Eternal security. Here's one, con courageous confession. Write this down like you did the others on the side note. Courageous confession, we're making confessions of Christ. When you make confessions of Christ, we're gonna make confessions of Christ when we go down on, um, what's the road that we go down? Uh, Franklin Street, thank you, Franklin Street. We're making confessions. Jesus is the Lord, he is the Savior. We believe him, he can change your life. We're making these courageous confessions. Verse 12, uh, 19 and 20, I want you to take your time through that. We're not going to get into that too, too much. Here's something that's important. Verse 22, who is a liar? Who is a liar, he says. Verses 23 down to verse 25. Can we read that? 23 to 25, no one who denies the son has the father. This isn't like somebody denying like, you know, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. This is also a person that says Jesus wasn't Messiah. Jesus wasn't the Lord. Jesus was just a man. That's what that's talking about too. So you, you, there's this confession. Notice verse 23. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. You ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness? And a Jehovah's Witness will, will have their doctrine of Christ or Christology is so skewed. I've had multiple debates through the years with Jehovah's Witnesses, and their doctrine of Jesus is not the biblical, historic, orthodox belief in Christ. But they say they know the Father. What does John say about that? Do they really know Jesus? No, they can't. You gotta have Jesus to have the Father. To really have the Father, you gotta have right belief about Jesus. This is where he's going. Satanic deception. Look at verse, what am I looking at? Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to do what? What's the word there? Deceive. There's deception. This is deception in the church. This is deception out of the church. The Bible says that people are going to be raised up from within the church who will deceive many. And there's deception coming from the outside of the church. Satanic deceptions. Years and years ago, a man came up to me. This is our church, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. 
and I didn't have a really nice suit. And so he was all in the suit and ties. And so I didn't have a real nice suit, and, and he was a very wealthy, wealthy businessman in the city, and he ended up coming to our church. I wasn't the lead pastor at the time. I was the youth pastor and the associate pastor. And so he came up to me, goes, the pastor here needs to have a suit. And I was like, well, that's cool. I mean, I can wear a suit at a wedding or a funeral. I don't wear a church. I didn't say that to him, but I said I could use a suit, and he spent $300. Now, back in those days, 300 bucks was pretty pricey for a suit. And so I went out and bought a suit. Well, this man was a mason. He was a mason. There was another man in the church named Wayne, and Wayne came up to me, and he, went, he wanted me to read uh, Morals and Dogma, I think is what you call it. Here, read this, Chris, and he was in our church. Read this. I want you to read this. What did I do? No, I didn't read that. No, I stayed away from that thing. I said, well, Wayne, I, you, know, it's, you know, I'm familiar with masons and what they believe, and, and what do they believe? What do they believe about Christ? False doctrine. That's what they believe. They've taken Jesus and they've twisted it and they've taken the gospel. It is not the gospel. There is satanic deception and it's manifesting in maybe some organizations that seem really good. Well, look at this. I want to be part of this. And I would say, no, don't be part of that. You'll be deceived. You don't need to read all of this, the false doctrine that's in the world to come to a conclusion about what the truth is. You'll never be able to do that. I've had people say, you need to read the Koran so that you know exactly what's going on. I don't need to read the Koran. There have been theologians and great men and women of God who have done that. They're apologists. I read their work. And they help me to understand some of these things. Be careful. Somebody comes up to you, you should read this, the Book of Mormon. Don't take that. If you want to read something, read Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults. That's a good resource. Satanic deception. 2 Thessalonians 2, can we read these verses? They're going to be on the screen. 7 to 10, can we read these? Here's what Paul said. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it will do so until he is out of the way. Again, talking about the Antichrist, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's in us. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth so to be saved. Satanic deception. I understand deception. I was a little deceiver when I was a kid. And you're familiar with deception. Maybe not in a spiritual sense, but if you like magic and magicians, which I found fascinating when I was a kid, when I was just a little guy, I had a suitcase, and every week I would go to the magic shop. And I'd say, Daddy and Mommy, can I get a new magic trick? And so I built this massive amount of magic tricks. And I would take my little suitcase, and I would do my little traveling show. And I would be in front of my family, and I'd be doing magic to them, and it was just super fun. That's deception. It's sleight of hand. That's just a game. That's just for fun, and that's just child's play. But the enemy is the master magician. And he'll take your life, and he'll twist it, and he'll bring things into your mind and twist them so that he can capture you. 
So what I've done through the years, I'm going to close. What I've done through the years is pray, God, I want the truth. Would you give me the truth? Every book that has ever come into my library, and I guess there's about five or 6,000 total uh, library. I've given a couple thousand back to the church that I was a part of. I had digital and hard copy. So every book that ever came into my library, I said, I want the truth, Lord. Guard my mind against deception. And he has been faithful to do that. If you want to get confident, be confident in your relationship with God. Be confident in resisting all of these areas. Sinful detours, spiritual darkness, secular distractions, and satanic deceptions. Amen? Let's go to prayer. God, we thank you that you're a merciful God and you're a good God. We thank you that your truth endures. Nothing can destroy your truth. We pray that you would help us to have the truth in our mind, in our heart, in our behavior, in our lifestyle on an ongoing and regular basis. We want to obey you. God, we don't want to go down sinful detours. All of this, what we talked about, spiritual darkness and secular distractions and satanic deceptions are very real. Thank you, Lord, for the Apostle John, the one who is so close to Jesus on earth. And so we thank you that you empowered John, that you changed his life, and that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write this little letter. It's so important for us to be sure and to be confident in our relationship with you and to grow in confidence by resisting all of these things. God, we pray that you would help those who might be tripping and falling into deception. Maybe it's into a detour that they shouldn't be, a sinful pattern of living, whatever it may be. Maybe they're not intentionally illuminating their lives with the church or with the small group or with the Bible or prayer, worship, whatever it is. God, is it, is it a system of belief that they've been locked into, a secular distraction? What is it, Lord? Can we all stand to our feet? God, we just want you to move mightily in this time. Help us to do business with you. Help us to follow, follow the leading of the Spirit of God in this moment of time as we sing this song in Jesus' mighty name.